0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Professional Services Pursuit, a podcast featuring expert advice and insights on the professional services industry. I'm Brent, and today's episode is a recorded webinar that Cantata recently hosted, speaking with our esteemed guest, Michael Farmer, about redefining the ad agency business and his book, Madison Avenue Makeover.
1: Well, Brent, I feel like an esteemed guest. Thank you very much. You've been very hospitable. My name is Michael Farmer. I have been a management consultant, sort of a normal card carrying management consultant for my entire business career. First, starting at the Boston Consulting Group in Boston and Rio de Janeiro, and later with Bain and Company in uh, Boston, Munich, Paris, London, and Istanbul. And in 1990, I started my own, uh, I left Bain in London and started my own farm and company. And two years after I started, I received a call from an ad agency, Ogilvy UK, that wanted a strategy consultant to help. I found the business so fascinating and its problems at that time so complicated that I thought it might make sense to d- dedicate my firm to solving uh, relationship problems between agencies and their clients on the one hand, and better understanding the changes that were likely to occur in the business as a result of changes in the way agencies were paid, changes in technology, and all of the other things that we certainly have endured for the last 30 years. In 2015, I knew enough and maybe was frustrated enough that I felt that I ought to write a book called Madison Avenue Manslaughter to talk about the problems that I had observed. And that book went through three editions. And then more recently, last year, I was invited to be a fly on the wall at Huge that was going through a transformation. They gave me full independence to write a book called Madison Avenue Makeover The transformation of HUGE and the redefinition of the ad agency business. So here I am to talk about the books and to talk about what I've observed now over the last 30 years in my work with ad agencies and their
0: clients. Thank you for that context and provenance. And and as I've shared with you in the past, we've been able to exchange notes here and there. I think I got the original book in hardcover, uh, recommended it to many folks in the industry and it's a great foundation of how you sort of diagnosed the challenges you see in the agency business that culminated with the new book and you shared this this graphic with us previously it's from the first book but it's a great jumping off point to how you first identified kind of the macro issues in the business and then looked at a way forward but maybe just comment a little bit on on this as we as we move through the discussion today.
1: Well, here's the thing, Brent. One of the big challenges in analyzing an agency like Ogilvy, London, you know, 30 years ago, is there are really three things you need to understand any operation. You need to know what their outputs are because every business in one form or another, whether it's a service business or a manufacturing or distribution business, deals with products. There's volume of output. You need to know that, you need to know what the revenue situation is, and then you need to know the costs, or in the case of agencies, the headcounts and the overhead. The biggest challenge for me back in 1992 was to figure out how much work an agency was doing, because I then discovered that they didn't keep that information. Always reconstruct how much work is going on between a client and the agency. And I have to measure that you know, you can't measure it in kilos or pounds. I had to invent a unit of work that's the size of a TV ad, an SMU, a scope metric unit. But over the 30 years that I've been in business with every client that I've worked with in 30 years, I've been able to look at the price of their outputs. That is to say the fees divided by the outputs. And quite astonishingly, From the first day, 1992 to today, the price for agency outputs has declined by 63%. It is a price-declining business that is not different from the price of manufactured products. And yet agencies are, you know, they don't use machine tools. They don't really get productivity gains. So my number one conclusion that forms the basis of Madison Avenue manslaughter is, hey, agencies, you are in a price-declining business. And that's because you are accepting growing workloads from clients without measuring them and accepting the fixed fees or the declining fees that clients are prepared to pay for. And as a result, because most of the big agencies are owned by holding companies and they have to generate a margin, The only way you can make a margin in a price-declining business is to lower your cost faster than the fees are coming down. Mm. And in the case of agencies, that means reducing headcounts in the face of growing workload. So as you can see here, the output per creative among my clients over a 30-year period has almost trebled. And that's not because they're doing social and digital today. These are on a normalized basis. In effect, this is output in TV spot equivalents, so to speak. You know, we're looking at major increases in the output per head, which partly explains the fact that many people that work in agencies today think that, you know, it's a sweatshop environment. No, that's great. And and
0: to to see this, this trend in the macro data really, really puts it into stark relief. So we you know we're going to talk predominantly about the second book but but Madison Avenue Manslaughter really laid the foundation so there's a there's a several year span between the books and maybe talk a little bit about makeover so Madison Avenue Manslaughter all your data the hypothesis We're in market, I know, devoured by quite a few agencies. Some may have put them into practice and really said, you know, we are going to change the way we do business and begin to mitigate some of these trends. But maybe for our participants today, give us a little bit of a background of the
1: idea and how the impetus for Makeover came into being. Sure. (laughs) The problem with Madison Avenue Manslaughter is it's a gloomy book, you know? I mean, it's not, wow. Well, let me read this and feel good at the end of the day. Because it says, if you're running an agency, you're under a lot of pressure. And the only way you're going to eventually fix that is if you start to know how much work you're going to do for a client from the scope of work. And you negotiate your fees on that basis. So keep track of the work you do have a way of measuring it, and then negotiate fees on that basis. That was the basic fix. Mm -hmm. Now, the book went through three editions, 2015, 2017, when the whole media issue came to the fore, and then 2019 was a final update of all the data in the book. Now, one of the readers of that book was Matt Baxter. And, of course, Madison Avenue manslaughter was pretty much about the problem facing creative agencies rather than media agencies. And Matt was a media agency executive. He was in New York, although he's Australian, a young guy. He was running an initiative, which is IPG's big media agency. He had been in New York since 2016. He had spent five years turning around initiative. And in fact, he had a long history of turning around media agencies wherever he worked. He read Madison Avenue Manslaughter. I happened to be doing some work with initiative, but not for him. I was doing it for someone else. But we knew of each other. And one day he was appointed to take over huge the creative agency based in Brooklyn, which is an IPG agency, with a brief to turn the thing around. It hadn't grown for a long time. So one of the first thing Matt did, and it was a surprise to me, was to call me a month after he took over and said, hey, I think you might be interested in a writing project. I am going to do a massive turnaround of huge, and it might be of some interest for you to tag along and uh, see what we 're doing, and write a book about it. he also asked if I would uh, would be in a position to provide consulting advice mm-hmm. about what they needed to do. but after a couple of weeks of discussion, it was clear that writing the book was going to be a full time operation, and that I had to begin immediately, and that he should use the services of another consulting firm to help him define what the transformation should be, so he took over in June of 21. And he took over huge. He called me in July. And by September, we had pinned down all the details. He had another consulting firm. And so I started to work doing the normal things consultants do, which is gather data, interview people. Mm -hmm. Quite importantly, he gave me the freedom to write whatever I wanted, to not to have to seek his approval or the approval of anyone else, I had complete editorial freedom, which, as I look back on it, was a very, a very bold, courageous, and some people would say slightly crazy thing to give to an outsider. But that's how Matt is. You know something? He's pretty fearless. And he was thinking, from his standpoint, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to do the right transformation. And Farmer's uh, a reliable writer. He does his work based on data, so I can trust him. And It'll have a good conclusion, anyway. That was the theory, and it it took what a little over fifteen months to actually do the work. Uh, The book manuscript was delivered to the publisher November last year. I've got a great publisher. They had a a hard copy in my hand by May, which is really amazing. And I told them I wanted it done quickly because this is a a very current. Situation. The bridge between the two books, you know, culminating
0: now in in a shop that's changing and it's gone through evolution. I looked at, you know, the first book and now, you know, eagerly awaiting the the hard copy of the second. And there's this notion of um, the fact that any business person or from any industry can really look at the books and gain some understanding of the business. But there's also external misconceptions of ad agencies and it'd be great to talk a little bit about that i kind of i think as you're in the inside writing writing this this new book what were some of those those notions of it being really the the pressures the challenges the the notion perhaps of growth programs and clients uh, with diminishing growth as well these notions and misconceptions of the firms
1: of the of the business themselves? Very good question, Brent. And there is so much going on for agencies. I mean, if you just think about the history, they shifted from commission to labor based pricing. Mm -hmm. And then because clients didn't know how to handle labor based pricing, they brought procurement people in because they figured those folks are the expert in dealing with suppliers. So procurement people started coming in after 2000. By 2004 and 2005, we had the invention of digital and social advertising. So in addition to having TV, radio, print, and direct marketing, all of a sudden we had Facebook, we had Instagram, we had Yahoo, we had online videos. And a few years later, we had the financial meltdown of 2008, which just destroyed growth around the world. Let's just think about this from a client standpoint, not an agency, but a client. A client CMO changed the way agencies were being paid because they were being paid outrageously high sums of money. And then all of a sudden had all of this digital and social media to deal with, plus a financial meltdown. And at the same time, they are under pressure to grow the top line for their C-suite executives. And the truth of the matter is, they were not succeeding. After 2008, by my analyses, 20 of the top 50 advertisers in this country actually shrunk their top line rather than grew it. In other words, all of this, let's expand the scopes of work. It didn't lead to any results. It didn't lead to any top line results. So of course, procurement was turned loose Mm. to cut costs everywhere in order to maintain the share price of the advertisers. And agencies have been on the receiving end of things. They've seen their fees cut every year at the same time that they've seen their scopes of work grow. And why have the scopes of work grown? Well, because in the absence of having any science about what will make the top line grow, let's try everything. You know, let's try a different mix of digital and traditional. And that's what's been going on I would say from the financial meltdown today, which is a 15 year period, has been a period of experimentation by advertisers and it has failed. What they have done, though, is that they have really done a great job at making it difficult for their agency to do a good job because, in their quest to lower fees, they have seen the holding companies tell the agencies that they have to downsize to make their margins. So agencies have been liquidating their talent on the one hand, while they're handling more workload. And the second thing they've done, the advertisers is that they have accelerated the rate at which they change agencies. They change them now about every 3 or 4 years, which means that agencies instead of being in the business of helping clients grow by understanding their problems and working with them for the long term, Now agencies are in the business of generating new clients because you have to replace the clients that you've just lost. The agency business has been transformed in the wrong way as a result of the changes in remuneration, the introduction of digital and social advertising, the introduction of procurement, and their own downsizing which has led them to now be in the new business development business. And that's what CEOs do instead of thinking about how do I fix an agency that's in a declining price business? There's so many pressures on agencies. They hardly know which way to turn. They're desperate to hang on to the revenue they've got. But at the same time, they're desperate to win new revenue and a desire to grow because they're under enormous pressure from their owners.
0: Those conditions are, are fascinating to recap certainly macroeconomic from the financial meltdown to present the explosion of workload to scope certainly all the new advertising modalities and marketing possibilities in market but i think what's interesting and you know we started off talking about misconceptions is that many large brand clients are not growing and in the book there's you know really interesting notion where you articulate some of the programs that agencies deploy on behalf of their clients who are not growing are also ineffective so there's there's sort of this downward cycle and we'll talk next in a little bit about kind of this notion of productization and um, efficacy. But I wanted to ask you a question, and it's a big one, but there's been a tremendous, very voluminous articles writing thought leadership um, that pervades sort of the larger business press, as well as, of course, the, the advertising industry press. Your books have been phenomenal and instrumental in, in guiding that conversation. But why is it so hard for agencies that are touted innovation, freshness, creativity? groundbreaking work and thought to change and reinvent themselves when the evidence seems pretty
1: clear what conclusions have you drawn around that there are several possible answers but i think that as a result of holding companies buying up the major agencies since you know the mid 80s and we know how big they all are right now and they pretty much dominate the industry i think that holding companies themselves are really just financial entities that own a lot of businesses. And those businesses have to meet their budgets, which is a growth budget and a profit budget. And the sum of those budgets add up to the holding company's performance. So holding companies are all about numbers. Mm -hmm. Whatever they may say about holding company relationships and the like, don't be fooled. Holding companies are about requiring their businesses to make the numbers. And if they don't make the numbers, they're punished. And they're punished by not getting any bonuses. We are now in an industry where the owners require certainty. Certainty that you're going to make the numbers. And if you're not going to make the numbers, you better downsize so that you do make the numbers. And The desire for certainty runs squarely against the notion that the job of a CEO is to prepare a company for the future by making risky but logical decisions about where to go. You know, the most obvious example is Netflix going from mailing CDs to Mm -hmm. becoming a streamer to becoming a producer of content. I mean, how far away was Netflix? from being a producer of content in the days when they were just mailing out other people's CDs. You know what I mean? That is a massive, risky, and expensive choice that the CEO made. Agencies, on the other hand, have CEOs who think that their job is to make the numbers. And if you make the numbers, you're not going to do anything that gets in the way of making the numbers. Just to talk about Matt Baxter at HUGE. Matt knew as soon as he begins a transformation that changes the way they price the products, that changes the products themselves, that changes the dialogue with the client, that he's going to lose some clients. Mm -hmm. Some of them don't fit the new model. And that's going to have a a knock-on effect in his numbers. So the real question in here, Brent, is how do you encourage a CEO of an agency who's owned by a holding company and a holding company demands certainty of numbers. How do you get them to take a risk so the agency is still alive in five years? I don't know what it takes. It just takes courage that Matt has. It takes something else that Matt has. He has a very fine sense of right and wrong. And he's someone who basically thinks if I just try to make my numbers. And if doing so weakens the agency strategically for its long-term future, that's wrong. And I'm not going to do it. That's not how I'm wired. If I get punished for not making my numbers, I can accept that. But what I cannot accept about myself is doing something that puts the future of an agency at risk, just so I can make a bonus. Now, he's rare in that, by the way because he's the only CEO that I've worked with in 30 years who's been prepared to take that risk. All of our service and manufacturing and distribution CEOs in this country, I think, have gotten hooked on the let's make big bonuses for ourselves by making the numbers. And I think that you don't hear an awful lot about what is the long-term strategic need and what risk do we need to take to get there. I'm not just singling out agencies. I think it's kind of a disease that affects all of our industrial operations. Something else that is having a profound impact
0: on business and industrialization is the rapid proliferation of AI, right? And I think we'd be interested because you have such a wealth of understanding in this corpus of knowledge going back 30 years on all these external factors that are pressing on on the agency model. AI isn't necessarily new to the agency business, like in the context of, you know, media firms using Google platforms and RankBrain and and working within that to boost returns for customers and kind of the biddable media and algorithmic formats. But now with the ability to do creative adaptation work, how profound do you think this will be as kind of a a new pressure or a a rapidly emerging pressure on agencies, some
1: of whom really rely on on that type of work to preserve some margin. Sure. Well, listen, I don't claim to be an expert on the evolving nature of the AI platforms, Mm -hmm. but I will tell you that 10 years ago, I saw an AI program that could crank out an entire year's worth of dealer advertising For an automotive brand. Mm -hmm. And I happened to be working at that time with an agency that actually did that kind of work. (laughs) It wasn't from them that I saw the AI platform. The agency had 100 full-time people doing dealer advertising work in the automotive business. 100. I saw a program that cranked out a whole year's worth of work in 15 minutes. Original print, video, you name it, brochures, the whole thing. Now, here's another thing where I do feel I have some expertise. Over the 30 years, I've been measuring scopes of work. Mm-hmm. So I saw what a typical scope of work looked like in 1992, and I know what a typical scope of work looks like in 2022. All right, let me give you some numbers. One of my first clients 30 years ago had 50 creatives, and they were doing about 360 deliverables a year, 360 ads, TV, Mm -hmm. radio, print. I had a client recently with 50 creatives that was doing 15,000 deliverables a year. Same number of creatives, huge difference in deliverables. Now, the deliverables weren't all big. A lot of them were Facebook posts, 52 different programs every week, changing it once a week, et cetera. A lot of online video, a huge number of adaptations. But let me tell you, what I do know about AI is a very large portion of those 15,000 deliverables can be done by AI. Now, let's just assume for the moment that a typical agency today is 30% of its workload is in digital and social. And half of that is subject to AI. You know, these are ballpark numbers, right? Well, that's 15% of their revenue and 15% of their headcount. Since agencies are paid by the head and not by the work, a 15% replacement of people by AI takes out 15% of the revenue. Because the business model is based on get paid for the number of people working on the account. If I were an agency, I would be terrified today that I have the wrong business model. I'm being paid by the head. Right. And AI is going to take out heads. If I'm paid for the work, as huge plans to be, then I'm safe. And in fact, huge is hiring AI people like crazy because they know that it doesn't matter to them whether people are doing the work or AI is doing the work. They're going to be paid for the work they do. They get paid by the product. Now, agencies have resisted for 30 years since they've been on labor-based remuneration. They've resisted even measuring or documenting the amount of work they do. So they have a huge job to do. I'm very worried for them for AI. I think AI is the gasoline on Madison Avenue's manslaughter. It had nothing to do with the book. My book said there's going to be a steady continued decline in agency work because the workloads keep growing. But now we've got something in that's just going to replace people, a certain percentage of people. And let me tell you, no holding company can stand to see a 15% reduction in income. Wall Street will be screaming, what the hell is wrong with you? Uh, Are the parts worth more than the whole? Maybe you should be broken up. Holding companies should be the most worried about AI. And yet, they don't seem to be they seem to be bragging about what a wonderful opportunity it is for them i don't think it is i
0: think it's a huge risk you know this is a really great sort of segue into a topic that comes through in the book and the the reinvention of huge and this notion of pivoting from labor based fee based rate card billable hour work which we're all familiar with and we've all lived through the the RFP cycles and uploading templates and and hourly rates into a client procurement system like Ariba and kind of having some loosely defined scopes and hoping it all comes out in the wash. But uh, we've been partners with huge for a while and partnered with quite a few agencies and marketing service firms and hybrids in market. And we've seen a shift to firms trying to, to beginning this nascent journey to adopting a product-based system to sizing work. And I wouldn't say, I'd say this is a trickle, Michael, and not a deluge, but the industry is is moving in bits and pieces. But HUGE has taken this, in the book you illuminate this quite a bit, to a whole another level, even hiring a product officer. I'd love to hear kind of your insight there, because do you see this as really that sharp turn that needs to occur in order for shops to, to survive? And thrive.
1: Yeah. Listen, before I talk about the change in product and change in the way they want to be paid, there is something that preceded that Mm -hmm. that Matt Baxter initiated that I think is what allowed him to kick off the change of pricing. The first thing he told me when we spoke on the phone is that he was going to reposition huge. As a company that helps clients grow, helps clients perform better. And he said to me, I've seen what the management consulting firms have done for 40 years. Mm. And, you know, I can speak to that personally because I was at Bain and BCG when they were fewer than a thousand people. They were a couple of hundred people when I joined. I think BCG is 25,000 today and Bain is 20,000 people around the world. They charge their people out at five times the salaries of their people, not at two times the salaries of their low cost people. They have grown. They make good money. And it's all because they focus on helping clients perform better. Absolutely. And Matt said the only way that you can get decent prices in any service industry is you're helping clients with their performance, not giving them creative output, you know what I mean? But really helping them to grow or to become more profitable or to expand in new countries or to introduce new products or whatever it is that they need to do. And he said, that's the secret to pricing in the industry. Now, on top of it, we have to change the mechanism. Sure. And so first thing we're going to do, and it was the subject of the first management retreat that I outlined in Madison Avenue Makeover. First thing he did was get his management team on board that they were going to change their mission to improve results for clients, specifically improve growth. Then he said, and now what we're going to do is develop a suite of products that allows us to do that. And by the way, we're going to create 45 products. <laughs> How he got to that number is a long story, but we're going to create 45 products in three separate categories. Each of those products, It's going to have a price, just like my iPhone has a price. If I go into T-Mobile to buy one, or if I go to Apple to buy one, I pay a price for it. I can't ask them, oh, what are the laborers' costs? Or how much overhead do you increase your profit margin on that so that I can fix the price for you, which is what procurement does with agencies. The price is the price. And so Matt said, we're going to be in the results improvement business Secondly, we're going to have a suite of products that are specifically designed to help do that, and they will be sold at a fixed price. And any program that we engage in with our clients will use one or more of these products to fix whatever performance problems they have, and then we will charge a price for it. There are other things in his transformation. One is a reorganization so that he runs the company on a global basis. Another thing is the way they approach clients and talk to them about the sales process. But, you know, I think the critical things in the huge transformation are a complete change of mission to where it's very similar to what consultants say, but what huge uses is their creativity and their technology and -hmm. their products to solve it. And, you know, consultants go about it a different way. They focus on different kinds of data. Their creativity is a more analytical creativity, Sure, but it's still creative. It's still quite creative. There's no question about the fact that the Baines, the BCGs, the Carneys, the McKinsey's, and and, uh, all the others that are involved in the business have highly creative analysts that can look at a lot of data and develop a story and an action plan out of it. But it's not the same thing as using the type of creativity that a huge would use to help clients perform better. Mission first, and then product sold at a fixed price. Very, very critical for the transformation at huge. And bringing up the management consultants and the way they've been able to preserve margin
0: over the years by really keeping, not all of them, but but keeping their eye on efficacy, expertise, results, um, some of which really won't even engage unless they kind of have that guarantee with the client that we're going to set a goal and share in those results together. One of the last topics I want to explore with you, lessons. And in here Cantata, we work with all range of shops, various sizes, ascendancy from creative boutiques and digital transformation shops that are that are kind of on an upward trajectory all the way to the Hold Coast. But what are some lessons that those shops on their journey, on their ascendancy, maybe, maybe reinvention could take? I mean, folks here you know, everything, they they see the data, essentially, cost plus pricing and rates, and they think, gosh, you know, this procurement organization that I'm grappling with is so formidable. If we can just get in enough revenue, I think it'll all work out in the wash. Maybe we'll be able to do some effective work here and there. But for that exhausted or or exasperated Agency leader or head who really wants to pivot, what are some lessons that you think you could distill and take away with this arm of this
1: data? The books. Where would you suggest they start first? Well, listen. I think the most important thing for an agency client head or a new business team and engaging with a client is to do something that I don't think they do at all, which is say, "Let's talk about your problems." <laughs> <laughs> Why are we talking with one another? What is it you need to have done? Why is it that you used to perform well and grew and you don't today? What has changed? What do you know about your current situation that would allow us to put together a program of work that would restore growth or profitability, whatever the case may be? Now, I can tell you from my time at BCG and Bain that we never began an an engagement without a very thorough understanding of that. And in many cases, we would actually commission a short study of three months to where we would do an independent evaluation of what had taken place over the last five years that changed the client's situation. Agencies don't do that. In fact, you know, it's funny, when I go into an agency and I talk to the client heads, Over their scope of work. I say, what's the purpose of this scope of work? Why does it have these different briefs in different disciplines? Why TV, radio, print? Why digital and social? Why the messaging? What is this supposed to accomplish? And you know what I always hear? Well, it's what the client wants. Hmm. As if the client that is failing to grow and has failed to grow for more than a decade now knows what scope of work to use. Why aren't they getting advice from the agency about, given our problem, whatever it is, this is our recommended scope of work to address it. You don't hear that from the agencies anymore. So no wonder they're treated like vendors and not like strategy consultants, because if they were real strategic consultants, they would say, for this specific problem of growth that you have, we think the right mix of work. And the right number of people and the right timing is as follows. And that's the scope of work that we recommend. They don't do it. Hmm. So my number one recommendation, and we certainly spend a lot of time talking about this at Huge, is there needs to be a different dialogue at the beginning of the new business process. Or there needs to be a different dialogue at the beginning of the scope setting process within a fiscal year. Instead of, what do you want to do? The same thing we did last year or more of it, you know? It just doesn't cut it, because if a client isn't growing, a client isn't growing. P&G has only grown in recent years because they've managed to exploit their strong brand position by raising prices. That's what they've accomplished. They grow by raising prices. Well, you know, we all know that that's a dead end. And P&G is one of those companies between 2009 and 2019 that shrunk. -hmm. So, I would say, you know, an agency wants to transform. You got to think differently about what your mission is. You have to engage the client in a different discussion at the beginning of a relationship. You have to take ownership for the scope of work. It has to be the right scope of work, not just the thousands of deliverables that the client thinks might work. And then, if you do that, and if you're right, then it looks like you've got some expertise and you actually can help in these situations. And maybe the next year, you can raise your prices for the same amount of work. Unless agencies engage their client like serious performance partners, they're not going to get anywhere. I think they're playing a loser's game today. They're competing with each other, and that's a loser's game. And they're playing a loser's game with their client by not really helping them solve the client performance problems, which are obvious if you just go to public data and take a look at their sales growth over the last 10 or 15 years. My number one thing, have discussions with clients about what problem needs to be solved so that you can come up with a scope of work and a budget rather than just letting the client tell you what it's going to be. Michael, this has been fascinating. Uh, We could speak about this for
0: hours. It's a passionate business. It's a business that's been buffeted from time to time,
1: uh, still demonstrates some resiliency. So thank you. Well, thanks very much, Brent. I feel very lucky as a human being in that I was given an opportunity to stick my nose under the tent in this business 30 years ago. That came about by accident. It wasn't a plan. And that the data that uh, we were able to develop in the consulting practice led to the first book. And, you know, fate would have it. Matt read it and thought I was the right guy to be an insider. So this is an insider's view of a management that overturned everything. I'm told by others that that makes the book Madison Avenue Makeover unique. It's not just standing from the outside and saying, this is what happened. It's more every day that I lived with them, I was reporting on what they were doing at their management retreats and how they developed the 45 products and how they costed them out so that they could make margins, how they dealt with the reorganization. So it is very much an insider's view of what's involved in transforming an agency which is by my reckoning a very big job requires a very dedicated ceo and a very dedicated management team that unflinchingly continue the work so brent thanks so much for inviting me it's been a great honor to to speak with you and with the listeners thank you
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, let us know by giving the show a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform and leaving a comment. If you haven't already subscribed to the show, you can do so anywhere you get podcasts, on any podcast app. And to learn more about the power of Cantata's purpose-built technology, go to cantata.com. Thanks again for listening.